This is the Agile Thoughts Podcast, and I'm Lance Kine. Hi, I'm David Bernstein, and uh, <laughs> I've been a software developer for actually longer than I care to admit. And I've had the great good fortune of training professional software developers in my career for about 30, 25 years, something like that. So I've trained about 10,000 in XP practices over the last 20 years. But before that, it was object-oriented programming and, and new technologies and stuff like that. This is a continuing episode of a series with David Scott Bernstein about his book, Beyond Legacy Code. And in this episode, we have a big lineup of special guests. Ron Quartel, Jeff Hoover, Len Gresky, Dan Davis, Butch Howard, and George Walters. So what did you guys think of it? Can you read that? The unique angle I, I saw in this was usually a, each, I think it was every chapter, had about a number of points, like seven points to do this or, and, and seven points to do that. And so I liked how you kind of summarize or use that as a structure to say, hey, here's the big idea of the chapter. And then we have like these seven things, these key takeaways. That's what it is. You were coming up with key takeaways because sometimes you read a lot of content and it's easy to walk away without, you know, well, I read things. I think I learned some things, but I don't know how to put it in action. So the the, the points I think were more about like what, what is actionable. So I like that. Like, so for example, you know, other books that, that I personally have read are like the Martin Fowler refactoring book. So it's a different st- structured book. That book's about like recipes for certain situations. It's like a situational yeah. description. And yours was a more, I'd say higher level. One of my favorite parts, by the way, was because as somebody who teaches a lot of test-driven development, I, liked, I thought you did a really good job of describing that process in writing. So, so I appreciated that. Cool. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to, again, boil everything down to common sense so that, so that we could really understand it. And I felt like there was a, a lot of misconceptions, especially on the more technical side. So I started in a sort of non-technical way. Actually, this is, that's part two, but let me talk to you. Just I wanted to ask you about part one first. Just because I've gotten um, I've gotten pushback on part one. Some developers are like, yeah, 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 we know this from. But I felt like it was really important to reframe the problem and for us to see the scope of it because we know from our own little experiences, you know, that there are challenges in software development. But to recognize, and this was a huge eye opener for me when I when I did some research in the industry and found that this is universal. Everybody is having these challenges to the tune of almost, I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in the U.S. alone. That's what the studies that I've read say, that indicate. And we're not talking about like bugs or anything. We're just talking about our inability to get product out the door. I think one of the things that really impressed me in the research that I did, we don't have much research done on our industry, was the, an NIST study that says that 80% of our effort is goes into reworking things that we did in the first 20% of our effort. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're supposed to be experts on workflow and we have like the worst workflow. 
wouldn't. <laughs> so I don't like the term eating our own dog food, but you, you understand what we're saying. Yeah. Like automating like the things that can be automated and simplifying. What I find is like, first of all, we in our industry are really smart people. Obviously, right? yeah. I think, I think we can all, or at least everybody outside our industry thinks that, but we like to make things a little harder on ourselves than, than it really needs to be. We tend to do multiple things at the same time which causes a lot of confusion and a lot of churn for us. And when we start to figure out like, oh, how we can do things simpler, we realize that there are lots of ways to simplify things. Just a quick example, like when we go to refactor our code, very often, and, and no one teaches this, I mean, the best that we have is Martin Fowler's book, but I don't really see schools teaching this kind of thing. So when people go into try to refactor their code or actually add a new feature, they don't clean the space first. They oftentimes just try to wedge the feature in any way they can. And that's infinitely harder. It's so much more difficult to do that than first creating a space to add the feature by refactoring the code and then adding the feature. Doing those two separate steps separately is vastly simpler. There are methodologies around this and they're, they're not they're complex methodologies, you know, like we all know software development is complex, but so, but when we take the time to start to figure out like the right workflows, things get far easier. And that's really what the Agilist, that's what the, the authors of the Agile Manifesto did for us. The people who wrote XP has done for us is help make our workflows more straightforward. So drawing from that, I think is valuable. I'm curious, you, you mentioned you got pushback on chapter one. So, so for me, chapter one was covering things that I maybe vaguely knew or I knew exactly. Like I was in a, I was, I was basically in complete alignment and then kind of re-remembering things or you were bringing in a little bit more new information on that, yeah. you know, the, the chaos report, et cetera. I think you, you were talking about the, the rework. That, that frame is a little bit, is a bit new for me personally because a couple of years ago was the first time somebody said, you know, the software TDD reduces rework. I'm like, rework? You know, we're reducing bugs. And then he described me, well, when you fix a bug, that's rework. I go, oh, okay, it's, this is a broader classification than I had uh, thought of before. So, so I like that. And I think that, yeah, the, the industry does waste a lot of money and I appreciate that you're saying that the software industry is a bunch of clever people smart people right entirely intelligent people and I, I and I'm with you on that but other problem is there are a bunch of smart people don't are, are, are who are a little difficult to get their minds to change so so uh, I don't know if that's the the, the Dunning-Kruger uh, cognitive bias where you know where I'm I, I don't of course you know my way of doing things is is the best way I'm not convinced by the way that that's a the, that that effect is everyone I think it's when I work with teams, there's a few <laughs> very smart people who only do things a certain way because they, 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 they've like anchored themselves onto that, that, that way. Um, you know, yeah. people have told me this for, for years and I have to tell you that I, even the most skeptical developers, if you show them, if you actually demonstrate to them, you know, like we're from Missouri, we show me, <laughs> they want to, they want to see. And if you can prove to them, if then you've got them, they're on board. They totally, like, that's their criteria, which is a correct criteria, right? Hey, if this stuff is good and it works, yeah. then let's adopt it, right? As opposed to managers who... <laughs> right, right, right. Often you cannot get through to them, no matter how reasoned your discussion is. So well, part, of, part, of that is, part of that is because the managers often have a different set of priorities. And so to be able to effectively communicate 
with the manager, you've got to understand what their priorities are and how, regardless of what the stated priorities are, it's the, what the unstated priorities are that drive a lot of their behavior. That's and, true. But in some projects, building the best product possible is actually a priority for everyone. You know, and and that's what a lot of developers are really trying to do is like be able to do the right thing, like refactor code when it's messy or, or things like that. And I find develop that managers sometimes don't understand why that's important from a business perspective, because we as developers don't articulate it in a business context. Well, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that there are many developers who do not understand the economic value of their time. <laughs> and and when and the cost of the rework and to you know when i'm coaching development teams that are you know beginning transformation you know a lot of what i like to talk about is understanding the impact of low quality and bad practices on their lives so I've, you know, led transformations through, you know, organizations where at the start, every build causes outages. And, you know, when we were done, you could show how we could go idea to production in 24 hours with no defects and no downtime. You know, what happens then is people get off the, the late night production incidents. They, they, they start getting done what they committed to, you know, in, in in, in an increment and and then begin to get their lives back. But sometimes they're so overwhelmed by the mess that they're in that they can't they can't see how to get out of it. But the, the economics is, is I think is a big thing. And regarding your comment earlier about about that most of the cost of a software application occurs after it's deployed to production, Robert Glass wrote an article about 20 years ago in I think it was in IEEE software called Frequently Forgotten Fundamental Facts About Software Engineering, where he talks about the fact that the, the bulk of the cost of an app you know, is incurred after it goes into production. I'm not sure if that was the, the source that I drew upon or not, but you might not have noticed I, I made a chart that showed that. That so, the actual original development is only 20% of our effort, and the vast majority after production, that is not maintenance. That actually is fixing defects and and enhancing features. And That's right. Enhancing and features is the most important. But, but what's interesting is a rule of thumb is that you can look at a budget and for a, a project, say, or you know, a, a piece of software, and then multiply it by five to eight, and say this is the investment you're in for over the life cycle of that of that piece of software and what economic value are you going to get out of it? So it's a, that model is incredibly useful. Yes. Yes. Mm. And, and also I think the main point that I was trying to make was that it doesn't have to be that way, that you could actually not have to do all that rework if we think about it a little bit in a little bit more detail. And that's, that's the goal. Agile Thoughts wants your help. However you find our show, be it through iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other podcast aggregation systems, go ahead and leave us a review. Click some stars. 
and that will help us grow the show. Thank you. Check out the show notes because we have some goodies in there, like a video of David where he frames up the problems with software development. And there's other links to things about David there as well, like to his company and to his book, Beyond Legacy Code. Where are the show notes? The show notes are right there in your podcast player, if that's what you use to listen to this audio. If instead you're downloading this podcast from the website, go back to the website and there you'll see the show notes where you downloaded this MP3. This episode is part of a series. If you missed the first episode, go back to the show archive and you'll find the start of this series at episode 188. How to find the show archive? Type in your favorite search engine, Lancer Agile Thoughts Archive. Next episode, more David Scott Bernstein. Your title's Beyond Legacy Code. Is that what you mean by the goal? Yes. The goal is not to get to legacy code in the first place. We're taught to write software, but we're not necessarily taught to read software. And then we don't necessarily, therefore, write for readability, right? And like there's an underlying premise that I think is behind all of that that resonated for me there with, you know, that context of, oh, yeah, so... That, that idea of like, I may have to look at this again some other time, or other people will certainly need to look at this some other time. Like we don't, we don't go there, right? And inherently, and I think that's just some of that that plays through.